0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. We just kind of got an introduction to this last week. We read the first two verses. But let me kind of give you a division of uh, the ninth chapter, including 10 verses 1 through 4. In the first seven verses of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, you have the Messiah. You have his name and his rule and his kingdom. His name, His rule, and His kingdom. And then verses 8 through 12, you have judgment upon Israel. And then verses 13 through 17, you have the impenitent or unrepentant nation, 13 through 17. Verses 18 through 21, you have the wrath of Jehovah. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which should be included in this section, and I'll show you why in a little bit unrighteous judges, and, their, and three questions that, they, that are asked of them, three questions that God asks. And so we have uh, that division in this ninth and tenth chapter, at least the first part of the tenth. But we'll take it verse by verse and see the message, I mean not the message, but the Messiah and his name and his rule and his kingdom in the first seven verses. So let's pick up with verse 1 again. We read verse 1 and 2 in our last lesson. But it says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, see now, at first and afterward, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now then, if you notice this, it says, The dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. This is describing Israel's description that we just saw in the last chapters. It's describing the conditions that just uh, were described in verses 21 and 22. And those conditions were dimness and darkness and anguish. And, and uh, they will be driven to darkness and trouble. Is all in the scene in verse 22, and it says that shall not be that kind of vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun the land of Naphtali, and he refers back to Second Kings chapter 15, verse uh, 29, where these places were afflicted before. Let me read Second Kings 15, verse 29. It says. In the days of Pekah king of Israel came Tiglath-pileser king of Assyria and took Ijon, and Abel-beth-maachah and Janon and Kedash, and Hazar, Hazor rather and Gilead and Galilee all the land of Naphtali and carried them away captive to Assyria so he speaks of a previous affliction and then in the same verse And the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously, you're back in the first verse of chapter 9, holds your place where we're studying. And afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Now then, it's speaking of a future affliction and a future uh, deliverance as well in verse 2. Verse 2 says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And when it says hath in the present tense, it means it's a rather a prophetic present. If you know what I mean, it's a prophetic present. It's prophesying of a present thing. And that language is kind of poetical when it's used in that sense. Uh, In other words, the prophet was speaking of something that had already been, but he was referring to the fact that it would have its setting in the future. And it's a prophetic present tense, which is difficult to understand. But when we read in Matthew chapter 4, you'll see that it is a prophetic present tense. In Matthew chapter 4, verses um, 13 through 16. It says, "And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum." This is immediately what Jesus did after the great temptation. Dwelt in Capernaum, in Capernaum which is upon the sea, in the borders of Zebulun the sea coast, in the borders of Zabulun and Nephilim. the same places that are spoken of in Isaiah. And it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, "So this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah said hath." Already happened, and now it is the prophetic future that it, it's really happening in the days of Jesus. See, many many years later, some well, they say seven to nine hundred years, seven hundred years later, because Isaiah's prophecy was probably about seven hundred years before Christ. Now then, notice it is spoken by Isaiah, uh, the prophet, saying. Now here's what he said: the land of Zebulun. The land of Nephilim, by way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So it was fulfilled what Isaiah was speaking of by the coming of the forerunner of Christ, and especially by the coming of Christ, that there was light that would lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. In other words, Jesus was that promised uh, hope for Israel of old. And we'll see, turning back to Isaiah now, now we'll see that it's based upon the promise of Christ being born and of his coming. His first coming and His even including uh, his second coming is included in Isaiah 9, verse uh, 6 and 7. But let's progress on down in Isaiah 9, verse 3. It says, Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. Then they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the the day of Midian. God was, of course, the deliverer for Israel in the day of Midian. You know what the day of Midian is, if you remember. Gideon, a Midianite, uh, Gideon in the days of uh, Gideon went up against the Midianites. I've got my words twisted up. But the Midianites came against uh, uh, Gideon and he overcame them and God broke the uh, oppressor in the days of Midian through one man. Gideon and his small army of of uh, 300 men, if you remember. He started out with 32,000, and he ended up with 300. And you know, God told him, He says, Gideon, you can't take these 32,000 and go, because they'll claim that because there were so many of them and they were so powerful, that uh, they they will give them, themselves the glory of the victory. And so, uh, God says, you're going to have to reduce your army. And He gave him a test, and, and all but... Uh, Was it 10,000 of them went home? And then uh, he said, Gideon, there's yet too many. And so they had another test. They went down to the river and they drank out of the river and some bowed down on their faces and some uh, kneeled down and lapped water in their hands. And God says of these 300 that lapped water in their hands, He says, by these we're going to save uh, Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And remember the Midianites were a hundred uh I believe 35,000 and there's two different groups of 15,000 and 120,000 but anyway by all of these all this great army God said 32,000 was too many and so he wanted Gideon and the army that he had of 300 to realize that they were so weak that they couldn't have won the victory had it not have been had it not been for the Lord and his miraculous hand in the, in the battle. And God really did win the victory for them, didn't He? But He told them what to do, and they did it. And, uh, of course, God blessed it, and that's the end of it. When God blesses it, that's going to be the victory, isn't it? So, anyway, what I'm saying here is that uh, in this passage of Scripture... The oppressor, verse 4, Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And and uh, Isaiah refers back to that as the way that God will give Israel victory over their oppressor in, in that day. Verse 5, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. Was not their battle with confused noise? Remember, God sent confusion among all the Midianites, and they thought that that uh they turned every man against his neighbor, and they began to fight with one another and they and they thought because of the pitchers that were broken with the lamps and the lights shining forth from every direction, three different uh, corners uh, around them, and the trumpets that were blown, they thought that uh, this army of Israel must have be a humongous thing, it must be. Great. It must be so much for them that they begin to run away. So God turned the battle for Israel in that day. For every battle of the warriors with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. So God predicts the deliverance that will come to His people through His power. Now then, verse 6 and 7. This applies to uh, the double advent of Christ, or His first and second coming. And they're uh, wonderfully blended together in these two verses. Most of us have heard Isaiah chapter six and se- uh, ch- uh, chapter nine, verses six and seven, preached on the birth of Christ, haven't we? Chapter nine, verse six and seven, as well as Isaiah seven fourteen. And so, nine verse six says, "For unto us a child is born; unto us a son is given." Now look, that that would refer prophetically to the birth of Christ. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to be a king. He's going to have the government upon his shoulder. And his name, here's his name, the Messiah and his name and then his rule. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. And to establish it, now you're coming into the second coming of Christ, aren't you? Because when will his kingdom be established? He'll sit upon the throne of David. He didn't do that when he came the first time. But he will do it when he comes again. He'll sit upon the throne of David. So his first coming and his second coming are blended together in these two verses. And when the time comes in the future, yet future for us, he will sit upon the throne of David and upon his and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Remember the promise that was made to Mary? It says in Luke one verse thirty two, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, that didn't happen when Jesus came the first time, did it? Jesus was crucified. And the first verse of this, first verse we read, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, the child was born and the son was given. And we preached on the infinite Christ and his coming into the world in his first advent. But uh, we know that the Messiah came as a baby. He was born as a gift from God to be in the future a ruler and sit upon the throne of David. And all of this is included. Verse 6 and 7 is so full of meaning that it would take forever to really to expound it. Let me just give you a few things about verse 6 and 7. We preached on the infinite Christ. He is infinite in prophecy because He's prophesied that He would... A son a child would be born, a son would be given. So is a prophecy of the infinite Christ. He is infinite in eternity, because Micah five two tells us that that one that would be born in Bethlehem and laid in the manger, that his goings forth would have been from of old, or from the days of eternity, from everlasting, from infinity. Micah five verse two says but and thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall he come forth. He's going to come forth. When he's born, he's coming forth from God. Out of thee shall he come forth. That is to be ruler in Israel. That takes in his second advent, doesn't it? And it says, whose goings forth, here he's described and identified, whose goings forth have been from the days of eternity, from everlasting. So the one that was born in Bethlehem, When did he have life beginning? He always had life. He lived before. And he came into this world in the form of a babe. God sent him into this world in that way to manifest, uh, to be made manifest among men and to take upon himself our nature and our likeness except for sin. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in John 1 verse 14, and the Word was made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. So that Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, and that was God, and by Him all things were made that, that were, were made, without Him was not anything made that was made. And so He's the Creator, and the Bible tells us that He dwelt among men. So he's infinite in power because he is called the mighty God. He is infinite in love because he's the everlasting Father. Isn't a Father supposed to show love? He's infinite in love. You have a perfect, perfect example of love. The love of the Father is Jesus gave us the parable of uh, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? And when the son had gone away and to a far country and wasted all his substance with righteous living. And what happened when he did that? He returned home. And when he came back home, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And so there's a great love of forgiveness. The kiss of reconciliation. It said put shoes on his feet. Put a, put a ring on his finger. Put on him the best robe. The robe of Christ's righteousness, shoes of respectability, the ring of significance, of authority. The ring is the signet ring that they used to stamp into the wax and, and, and seal things with. So he says, give my son that's returning respectability. Give my son that's returning authority. Give my son that's returning righteousness. All was forgiven. And that's all, all of that's given to you and I. So, he, and he's infinite in redemption. Notice he's called here in this sixth verse, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. You know, they're talking about peace over in Israel today and how to accomplish it, and they have nothing but war and fighting. And the Bible says, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. But listen, the Prince of Peace, you can have peace right now. The Bible says, As far as Jesus is concerned, that he made peace by the blood of his cross. So he made peace for all of us. Jesus says, I give you peace, not as the world giveth peace, give I unto you. He says, in the world you shall have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He says, I have spoken these things that in me you might have what peace. So, a person today can have peace in his heart in the midst of the most troubled world. And if you don't think we're in a troubled world, you just listen to the news day by day and see. We're in a troubled world. You don't even have to go out of Rio Dosa to find we're in a troubled world. We've got plenty of trouble here. But when you think of it nationwide and worldwide, look at the places in the world where can you imagine living in Jerusalem or the land of Palestine today or anywhere in that area, every day when you walk out in the streets, you don't know if you're going to be blown up or shot down or whatever. You say, well, they're going on with with the building and this and that and the other and they're doing things. They have commerce and progress and so on. They do, but at the risk of their lives. You and I don't have to worry about that quite as much, do we? But anyway, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Verse 10. 7 tells us of the future. And we've already spoken of that. Let me give you four things quickly. Uh, We know that that's going to happen. Verse 7, that the future government will be upon His shoulder and and He'll sit upon the kingdom, uh, the the throne of David, and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. That's something we don't have today. Judgment and justice. But look at verse 8. Verses 8 through 12. It's like, Four stanzas of this judgment that God has given. Verses 8 through 12, and verses 13 through 17, verses 18 through 21, and chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is like four stanzas, four different strokes of judgment. And the first one is contained in these, in these verses, verse 8 through 12. Let me show you, first of all, how that we know that there are four different stanzas of this. I want to give you the key verse that links these sections together. Look in verse 12. The last part of verse 12. These are worth marking in your Bible. One, two, three, four. The last part of verse 12 says, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You see that? That's in verse 12. Look down in verse 17, the latter part. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Still. That's the end of the second stanza. Look at verse 21. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. That's the end of the third stanza. Look at verse 4 of the 10th chapter. For all this... His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. See that? And by the way, we know that that would have been a better and a more proper division of the chapter because of the way it ends up. These first four verses of the 10th chapter belong to the 9th chapter actually because you break the continuity by saying this is chapter 10. And remember, chapter and verse division was given by man. Chapter and verse division are not especially divinely inspired. In many instances, they they made very good divisions. But in some instances, a one verse or maybe even a, a section of verses would have been better to couple with the previous chapter or vice versa. Or maybe the last verse of some of the others with the next chapter, depending on how you want to number them. So you can see that this statement is mentioned four times over. Remember verse 12, the last part. That's the first one. Verse 17, the last part. Verse 21. And chapter 10, verse 4. If you're looking at them in your Bible. You see all those different ones? Okay. So this first stanza of God's judgment we'll deal with in verses 8 through 12. And I don't know how far we'll get with all four of them. I'd like to give you all four of them, but let's look at it. This is judgment... It's titled, The Judgment Upon Israel. It says, The Lord has sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. So this is God's word unto who? Israel. Judgment upon Israel is the way this should be titled. The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and he hath lighted, it hath lighted upon Israel. I wonder why God uses both words here, Jacob and Israel. They're both the same person. You see, Jacob is, is his fleshly name, his human name, but Israel is the name God gave him. So it, it says, the Lord, is, Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it had lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria. Now, Ephraim also addresses Israel. Many times the, the, the tribe of Ephraim is spoken of in addressing the whole nation of Israel. And all the people shall know even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria. Now, here's what God is bringing judgment for. Look at the last part of verse 9. That say in the pride and stoutness of heart. This is what God is rebuking in Israel. The pride and the stoutness of heart. In other words, they're so affirmed in their pride. They're so stout in their pride. They're so determined in their pride. It's not just being proud. It's being... uh, Having pride with determination. Determined to be that way. I mean, it's bad enough to just have pride, isn't it? But just be determined to resist all uh, effort to humble oneself or to bring someone to repentance and to maintain that pride regardless of anything. In other words, arrogance and just stoutness of heart. Now, all of us become proud every once in a while, too much so. But the Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And you and I need to learn how to humble ourselves in the sight of God. And the Bible says humble yourself in the sight of God and he shall exalt you in due time. That's God's business to lift you up, not yours. And it says uh, they, this is what God is getting on these people for. It says the bricks are fallen. Uh, the bricks are falling down, but we will build with hewn stones. In other words, they said, oh yeah, the bricks are falling down, but we're going to build anyway with hewn stones. They fail to see that because that God's judgment rests upon them, that He's also brought all of the other things to naught that they try to do. Now look, we will build with hewn stones. It says the sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. You know what sycamores in the Bible were? They're not like our North American sycamores, but it produced an edible fig, a fig tree that you could eat. Remember, Amos said that he was a, a, a farmer, so to speak, and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the, the sycamore fruit, the fig had to be, this is what uh, Amos did in the book of Amos. He had to puncture those figs before they would ripen. They had to be punctured. So he's a gatherer of sycamore fruit. So he cultivated them by doing all that was necessary to make them ripen, and then they would have figs. And the the wood from the sycamore tree was used in making uh, utensils, various kinds of utensils. Now the cedar, notice it says in this verse, the sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. In other words, we're going to build with cedars. Cedars were free from knots and they were durable. They were prized for building. They used them for pillars and for paneling. And, that, and cedars were a status symbol. You remember the lofty cedars are spoken of in the Bible. And many times the cedars were used for that. But listen, if God had so destroyed the trees, many times when the, when the enemy would come in, he would destroy the trees as a part of the destruction that he would bring. And these people, therefore, were under a delusion that they could rebuild regardless. In other words, the coming attacks would be punishment for their pride, and they would not have anything to rebuild, even though they made a pretense of having all that was necessary to to do what they wanted to do. You know, if you brought this over in a spiritual application... You and I sometimes can be so proud that we think we've got all the instruments at our hand to do anything we want to do, and yet if we just realize we don't have anything unless God breathes upon it, unless He blesses it, we don't have anything. You ever seen people that's so proud to say, "Well, I got all I need." That was the scene of the wealthy farmer, wasn't it? Remember in Luke chapter twelve, he said. He said he had more goods than no place to bestow his goods. And he says, I'll tear down my small barns and I'll build greater barns. And I will say, I, I, I. I will say to my soul, my. The personal pronouns in there are dumbfounding. I will say to my soul, soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul. Shall be required of thee, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided, so is he that layeth up treasure on earth and is not rich toward God see what we have what you have today let's get right down to home what you have today you ought to thank God for and don't think that that it's indispensable that that I mean that that it can't be changed don't think that you're Invincible, don't think that you're uh, independent. See, God gives. Job thought he was pretty independent one time, didn't he? All the wealth, it says he was more wealthy, rich, than any man of the East. And God took it, permitted the devil to take it all away in a day's time. You know, I'm thankful today for life. I'm thankful for food on the table. I'm thankful for clothes on my back, for a shelter over my head. I don't have to have the finest house in in Riodosa. If I'm protected from the elements and it's comfortable, I can be thankful. We sing, Sharon and Ron sing a song. Got a mansion over the hilltop. I'm satisfied with a cottage below, just a little silver and a little gold. Can you learn to be satisfied? Most people are never satisfied. They're just never satisfied. They want more and more all the time. doesn't mean you shouldn't be thrifty. It doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, take advantage of all the opportunities God has given you. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, try to take care of what God gives you. But it does mean that if you set your affection on those things alone, you'll be disappointed. The Bible says, if ye then... Listen, I may get to preach and not even get the rest of this. It says, if ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Listen, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life, you're dead and your life, you're dead to your old sins, you're dead and your life, I have life though, I have a resurrected life, your life is hid with Christ in God, and when Christ who is our life shall appear, or your life shall appear, then shall ye Also appear with him in glory. I like the assurance there, isn't it? It says, Then shall ye. Have you ever heard people say, I hope I make it? Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. God doesn't, you know, man puts in the ifs and ands and buts, and maybe I'll make it. Paul says, You're dead, your life is hid with Christ, your life is hid with Christ in God, so it's not yours anyway, is it? And He's got control of it. And he says, And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, well if he appears and he's our life, we know we're okay. And it says, Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So just as sure as Christ appears in glory, you're going to appear in glory. But Christ is our life when he shall appear. How any, that's Colossians chapter one verses one through four, and if you study those, and you don't have assurance when you get through, I don't see how in the world you cannot have really assurance if you're a believer in Christ and know that you're saved, know that you're, that God is going to keep you, know that you're going to be safe and secure from now on. And another one, if you want it, First John chapter three verses one through three, and I can give you some more passages if you want to write them down. Romans chapter 8. All of it, really. But anyway, 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8, and the last part of it. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So anyway, what we were talking about? Cedars? Back there in verse uh, 10. Let's read on down to 12 and we'll have to close. Look back in Isaiah 9, verse 11 now says, therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him. Why? Therefore, because of their pride. He's going to set up the adversaries. He's going to set up the king of Assyria and reason. If you'll notice back in chapter 7, verse 1. Came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason, king of Assyria. See, reason and Pekah, and Pekah, the son of Remallah, king of Israel. So it was reason. It says, uh, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason, that's Syria, against him and join his, join his enemies together. He's going to mingle his enemies together. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind. He's going to join the Syrians before Israel and the Philistines behind them. And they shall devour Israel with open mouth. In other words, they'll have them in, in their mouth. Because you have one before and one behind. Just like this. To devour Israel with the open mouth. See, that's like an open mouth. that just it clamps in on them. Now look. And then it says, For all... His this his anger. This is God's anger against Israel because of their sin of what pride and stoutness of heart. Back in verse uh, nine, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, that was their sin, and this is the, God's judgment because of pride. And we'll close with verse twelve. Look for all this his anger. Is not turned away. God is still bringing judgment. And yet He says this, but His hand is stretched out still. Now then, His hand is stretched out still in judgment. In other words, there are other judgments to come, but it gives opportunity that if at any time, though His hand is stretched out in judgment, His hand could be stretched out to receive their repentance too, if they would repent. You see, when God stretches out His hand in judgment, it's an opportunity to repent. Just like Nineveh, and we'll close with this illustration. Remember, Jonah was to go to Nineveh and he preached, and he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Forty is a time of testing. And Nineveh shall be destroyed. Right? Right? And what happened? They repented from the king on the throne to the maid behind the mill, and they even made the animals bow down, didn't they? They had everything bowing down to God. And and the king said this, Who can tell? Who can tell if God will repent and not bring this evil judgment upon us? And God did not bring. It didn't mean that God changed his mind. It means they met a condition whereby God could uh do the same thing He always does when people repent. When it says God repented of the evil that He would bring upon them, it means simply this, that the evil that was determined because of their sins was reversed because they met the condition of God uh, that God requires to remove His judgment. And so He didn't bring the judgment. And so, if Israel had at any time repented and turned back to God really truly in heart, God would have forgiven it's a good lesson for you and I. The Bible says if any nation or any individual will repent and turn from their wicked ways, then God will forgive their sins. A nation or an individual. We find that that's God's principle. We find it in the book of Jeremiah. I won't have time to give it to you. But that's God's principle of dealing with nations and with people. Individuals. You want to turn away God's wrath, all you have to do is repent of your sins and turn to God and, and do it before it's too late. And that, that turns it away. God says He's merciful and ever forgiving. That's why men cannot just go on in rebellion and pride all their lives and expect God to, to be merciful to them unless they come to a place of repentance. It's a lesson that our whole nation needs to learn. It's a lesson that you and I need to keep in our hearts. Well, I've said enough about that. Thank you for your patience and kind attention. We'll pick up with the second stanza, the second stanza of this very judgment. Remember, there are four stanzas we gave you. We've only covered one of them.